Well, amen. If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter uh, 27. Uh, we'll be getting there in verse 1 in just a moment and be reading through verse 10 of chapter 28. So a very substantial uh, portion of Scripture today uh, as we uh, very quickly are moving toward the conclusion of what has been a, a three-and-a-half-year journey uh, through the books of Luke and Acts. And so we will bring it to its conclusion uh, next Sunday morning. And so again, if you will, open to Acts chapter 27. Uh, we'll begin in verse 1. Uh, it is good to be back with you uh, when I am absent, and particularly in terms of an extended absence, there are a number of things uh, that I am taught, a number of things that are reinforced uh, when I am uh, gone. Uh, maybe the first thing and most humbling thing is y'all do fine without me, okay? And so I am eminently uh, 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 replaceable, and uh, yet at the same time, uh, I am aware of, of God's irresistible call upon my life uh, to you as my people, uh, to this place, uh, at this time, uh, there is a sense to where I could not leave even if I wanted to, uh, in that uh, uh, my heart, uh, my thoughts always uh, remain with you. Uh, to be sure, as, as I've taken uh, part of this week to try to, to, to reconnect, to see some of our shut-ins and uh, so forth, and life goes on. Uh, the calamities come our way. Adversity interrupts uh, and shocks us and certainly changes our plan. And I'm uh, thankful for the, the many opportunities that I have uh, to enter into your lives and to, uh, to share the joys, but yet also share uh, in the adversities uh, as we walk through this very broken world uh, together. And so again, it is great to be back. It's great to gather to worship our God who is over and above all, whose plan for our lives, which we've had just a very minor interruption in that some fog changed our travel plans. And we were a day later getting home than we originally anticipated uh, but uh, whatever the meaning of that, and I wouldn't uh, read some great transcendent meaning to you know, a flight delay, uh, but yet it was a part of God's sovereign plan uh, for each of our lives. So, again, as we begin in Acts 27, as, as Christians, we are profoundly aware of the reality of, of moral evil. We're reminded of it daily. If you're introspective to any degree at all, you're aware of the moral evil that resides in your own heart. That, that is a reality for everyone, believer and unbeliever, that we interact with each and every day. We know that we sin and that we are sinned against. All humans are born as rebels 
against God, and therefore we transgress His moral law. And there is a second category of evil that we recognize, and that is the category of natural evil. Uh, to be sure, natural evil is a direct result of moral evil. Natural evil entered our realm when Adam willfully disobeyed God, and there was and there remains cosmic repercussions and universal calamity. Uh, I typically don't pay much attention to news uh, on uh, Sunday morning. I'm, I'm fairly focused. But for whatever reason, I noticed that there was an earthquake uh, either yesterday or last night in Morocco, and they're already saying that about 2,000 people have died in that uh, earthquake. Uh, there are concerns uh, related to uh, a hurricane, which typically is going to be related to tornadoes that accompany uh, that. Uh, on our, our trip, while in Anchorage, our tour guide was very careful to tell us about uh, what they call the Good Friday earthquake of 1964, which essentially destroyed the city of, of Anchorage. Uh, f thankfully uh, for them, only I think about 11 people uh, died uh, in that in that earthquake, it, it, but yet even to this day, they can take you to the fault line and you can straddle that fault line and and see where the ground dropped. And if you just go just a very few feet, you can drop down like 15 feet, where the earth just literally shifted. All of that because we live in a fallen, in a sin cursed world. Every human is born with this natural evil embedded within it, within us. We call this evil mortality. Uh, again, uh, I'm reminded of my graying hair and my wrinkled face and all of the other things, my aches and my pain. It is a daily testimony to this principle that is within each of us. In fact, the entirety of the created order has been cursed because of Adam's fall. Paul can describe this in Romans 8 as a groaning of creation, that all of nature feels the weight of the curse that it is under, and it actually is groaning, awaiting the day of God's ultimate and final act of redemption, the resurrection of those that are His. And so, indeed, there is disease, there is death, there are injuries and tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes and wildfires, the end, the list goes on and on. And Christians are not immune to the adversities of life in a sin-cursed world. Paul certainly suffered persecution at the hands of his enemies. He suffered this moral evil. Many sinned against him. Those enemies pursued him as a direct result of his commitment to the gospel. You would think that this kind of affliction would be enough. But God ordained that his predestined path, his path of obedience to Rome, his, his longed-for journey to Rome would be marked by the catastrophic adversity of a storm at sea. 
Paul was God's man, accomplishing God's purpose, carrying out God's mission in the midst of God's storm. And whether we suffer because of moral evil, and we will, or whether we suffer because of natural evil, and we will, or some combination of the interaction of both, it is an appropriate metaphor to speak of the storms of life. In fact, life is full. In fact, the fabric of life is indeed these storms, great and small. Read with me, if you will. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a, a ship of Adramatium, which was about to sail to the uh, ports along the coast from Thessalonica, uh, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus and a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, uh, we came to Myra and Lycia. And there the centurion bound, uh, found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete uh, to uh, Salomne. Coasting along with it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised him, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea uh, there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they have had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along uh, Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the North Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was called and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Uh, running under the lee of a small island called Calda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. boat. After... Hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Uh, they, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they have been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, uh, 
You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood uh, before me an angel of God to whom I belong and you must, uh, 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 whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. But when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found, uh, found 20 fathoms. And a little, further, a little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 uh, fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day uh, to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship uh, and uh, had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay within a beach on which it, they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, uh, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were brought safely to land. And after we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that it was a, a god. Now in the neighborhood of the place 
of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, uh, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick and with, with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and put his, putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Pray with me. Father, again, we thank you for your word. It is your truth. And at times as we read, uh, we're overwhelmed with the information, the, the content, and at some level even sometimes the, the relevance of, of what this particular journey means to us or for us. But yet, God, you have included it in your word. And your word is perfect. And so, God, I pray that we would uh, draw instruction uh, from this. Uh, God, that we would understand uh, that we, as Paul, uh, should be prepared to suffer all things for the sake of the elect. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is obvious from that lengthy reading that Luke took a considerable amount of time to record the details of this very difficult and very dangerous journey. Uh, as we think about the thrust and the primary theme and the ultimate purpose of the Bible, that is the presentation of the person and of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to reveal to us for our salvation the gospel of the God who saves. We could wonder, this sure is a lot of details about that which doesn't seem that necessary to my salvation. And of course, I think those kind of questions are folly. In the ultimate and perfect wisdom of God, we have this uh, for God's reasons and for our uh, edification. And so we're told by those that would understand these things far better than, than I would that Luke get, gave us a very accurate and a very detailed account. He, he wrote as a man that was not a professional seaman, but he wrote as a, a very wise and a very uh, astute observer of what went on uh, during the course of this journey. Now, even in, in my reading, and I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times before as I have been challenged uh, by uh, the, the preaching of, of, of these narrative texts with so many uh, historical and geographical uh, details, that if I were a documentary filmmaker, I could have a heyday. Uh, if, if, if I was on a cruise that, that went to these ports of call, y'all see a lot of Facebook posts saying, hey, this is where Paul was, okay? I, I could be very intrigued, and I, in my mind's eye, uh, I don't own a drone, but, I, you know, I, I can imagine a drone flowing over and giving us the bird's eye view. Here's the coastline, and, and here, here's the ports of call, and, uh, you know, showing you here's a drawing of what that ancient harbor would have looked like, and, Maybe you wouldn't be, but I would be fascinated uh, by all of that. Uh, uh, as we uh, flew this past week, and particularly as we flew in a small airplane over Kodiak Island, 
and just to to, to watch the the seacoast and and the, uh, the the starkness of the the steep uh, rock walls and and the the way the tide flowed in and out and these lakes at the top of mountains and the waterfalls that would flow out of those lakes i mean it, there was a great beauty to that and i was deeply intrigued by all of that and i can i can again in my mind's eye i can go there in uh this text and yet the point is for not to for us not to fantasize about future vacations but it is indeed to understand that in the wise providence of god this is the journey this was the chosen path by which he would deliver the apostle paul to the appointed place at the appointed time for the uh, appointed purpose. And so let's look at the first section. And as y'all know, uh, uh, I have to break these things down. Uh, we were uh, One morning, Ellen looked at the little table that I was sitting and had been reading my Bible and doing some studying and had my yellow legal pad out and all this. And what in the world are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just kind of doodling with this text and trying to kind of figure out and drawing lines and making notes and looking at key words and saying, well, here's kind of a break and here's kind of a break and here's a section. It's, it's what I do. And so, uh, again, uh, as I thought about this and, and I... I thought about this uh, whole business of, of this journey that Paul takes, and, and we're looking at something that probably took about six months. He probably leaves Caesarea sometime in August, about this time of year, and that is very late in the year for this type of journey to take place. Uh, as the month moves into September, uh, the travel becomes increasingly dangerous, and after September, uh, it becomes absolutely impossible to travel uh, on the Mediterranean Sea, at least uh, in these ancient types of ships. The, the, ship, uh, the sea becomes so rough th that it becomes dangerous. But yet, it's interesting, notice verse 1. And, and you know, I, I love little ironies, I guess you would say. And when it was decided... Well, we just all got together and everybody decided that's what we're going to do. Well, if you go all the way back to Acts chapter 9, when Paul, when Paul is introduced or when God introduces Paul to Ananias, he says what? This guy's going to the king. This guy's going to Rome. And, and repeatedly throughout the intervening chapters up until this point, one of the thrusts of the book of Acts is that Paul is going and he's taking the gospel. He's going to Rome. That's what he wants uh, to do. And so I, it's, it's again seemingly Luke's uh, attempt at, at a profound understatement to draw our attention that God, even though these pagans were making decisions about when and where they were going to go, it was according to what? One of my favorite phrases. According to God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And that it was God's storm that was going to interrupt their journey. And so 
both Drew and Brad talked a little bit about the succession uh, of Festus from Felix and these intervening two years and uh, the, the corruption that was a part of, of that. And we're told that ultimately Paul is going to be entrusted to a member of the Augustan cohort whose name is Julius. And like many uh, centurions, uh, he is seen in a fairly positive light. He is a, he is a noble pagan, uh, so, uh, so to speak, and seems to have a, a, a sense of uh, affection that, that God has a way many times in, in preserving his man or preserving his people, or preserving his purpose for his person. Think of Joseph. Think of Daniel. Think of so many over the course of history that God chooses to place in the midst of a hostile situation, of a hostile regime. But what does he do? He preserves them as they find favor. You know what? They were just lucky, weren't they? Just, just so happened, oh, Julius was a good old soul, and he happened to be there. And so we're told about uh, the companions that are going on the journey. And again, Luke draws our attention to the fact that he is along for the journey, the we. We did this. We're about to set out. And so after the first day, they make it uh, from Caesarea to Sidon. And just, I think, to illustrate the benevolence, uh, that Julius is going to extend toward Paul. Paul is allowed to visit friends there, uh, that Paul is going to be ministered to uh, by those that had heard and received and believed uh, the gospel, and they were going to extend hospitality uh, to uh, to Paul. And so after uh, this visit uh, that is described in verse 3, uh, they're going to continue along the coast. And guys in the sound booth, if you're awake back there, if you haven't left and gone out to the parking lot or whatever you do, uh, if you want to flash the map up there, uh, you may find it a bit interesting if you haven't already uh, looked uh, in your uh, Bible at the back of the maps, but you can kind of see uh, a rough outline of uh, the way, the, the path uh, the, that Paul is going to take, this uh, really out-of-the-way way of going along the coast of southern Turkey, uh, of finding protection uh, from uh, both the island of Cyprus and then the island of Crete, uh, finding a safe harbor there, finding protection after the wind so they can make their way uh, against the normal trade winds of that uh, time uh, of year. And so once they make it uh, to the city or the port of Myra, I take it we're having problems back there finding uh, the map that I sent you this morning by email and told you there was a link there that you could click on and that you could display it up on the screen. Okay. Have I ever told y'all that it's a fallen world? Uh, have I ever used that? Do I need to explain to you? Well, like I say, you can look in, the, in, in your maps at the back of your Bible, and typically it'll have the three missionary journeys, and then it'll say something about Paul's journey to Rome. And you can kind of, it is an interesting uh, thing to follow there. If you want to flip there occasionally, I know when you get bored, you look at maps when I'm preaching. So, you, you know, I know you know where they are, okay? So, Arriving at Myra, still along the coast of, of Turkey, uh, they board a, a larger ship 
that was a grain hauling ship. Much of the grain for the Roman Empire was uh, produced in that fertile region of Egypt that was uh, fertilized by what river? Come on. Remember your fourth grade geography. The Nile River made it possible there. It's annual overflowing uh, to be a very fertile area. And so much grain was grown and shipped over to Rome uh, for the feeding of the masses uh, there. So they make slow progress. They're going east. They're ultimately going to turn south. They're going to use uh, the island of of Crete as a a hedge against uh, the winds. And they're going to stop at a port uh, that is called Fair Havens. And most of the commentators say something of the lines that uh, uh, the Chamber of Commerce must have named this place Fair Havens because it seemed to be anything but a fair haven. Uh, that, uh, uh, you know, the, the bankers and the insurance agents and, you know, the local builders uh, got together and said, hey, we got to think of a name for this place so people will want to come and build their houses here and whatnot. So they named it Fair Havens. And so uh, after staying there, they, they recognized uh, that it's, it's not going to be suitable uh, for them to, to winter uh, there and, and so they, they decide that they've got to uh, go further uh, east, make more progress uh, on uh, their journey. And verse 9 tells us, time had passed, the voyage was dangerous, the day of atonement, the fast mentioned there, uh, they're moving well into the fall of the, of the year. And, and Paul advises them. Now, I don't know if this is a prophetic word, or as one commentator uh, calls it, just simple sanctified wisdom. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes uh, it's not necessarily that uh, we communicate that which is necessary and good and useful uh, to, uh, uh, from the Bible. Sometimes we look and offer some just practical wisdom, as my dad would have called it, just good old common, common sense, which as many notes is not so common uh, anymore. And so uh, they, they reject Paul's advice. The journey continues, and beginning there in verse 13, they find themselves uh, caught in, a, in the storm. Now, if you know anything about literature, you're aware that one of the kind of the favorite motifs of literature is not only travel logs, but survival stories, survival at sea. Think uh, whether you want to go Swiss Family Robinson and Robinson Crusoe or Gilligan's Island. They went on a three-hour tour, right? I can't tell you how many tour buses we got on on this trip and said, welcome to the three-hour tour, which means that everybody on that bus was stinking old to understand what that phrase even refers to, okay? And so, uh, at any rate, they, they, they find themselves in the midst of a storm. And indeed, we are often intrigued uh, by that. Uh, I can even think back, can't leave out the 70s rock music, uh, uh, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, the Gordon Lightfoot ballad uh, about, again, uh, the sinking of an iron or steel boat 
uh, in the Great Lakes many, many years ago. And so uh, a, a great theme uh, in literature. And it, it, it really captures a basic theme of man against nature. Now, I didn't have many disappointments on our trip, but I'll tell you one of them. We made our way to uh, Dawson in the Yukon. And just to be clear, and Jacob Duncan's already sent me a text asking me, if you know anything about Dawson, no, I did not, and I had to stop Ellen from doing the sour toe mash uh, drink, okay? If you don't know what that is, I'll explain. She gets mad at me when I, she, no, she had no interest in that, nor did I, okay? If you don't know what it is, I'll tell you uh, uh, later. But I wanted to go to the Jack London Museum. I thought that would be really interesting. Jack London, Call of the Wild. And so we walk around. I'm like, well, I know it's got to be right here. You know, trying to read those stupid uh, maps they give you. And uh, finally, we, I mean, we're off on this dirt road and wandering around. And we come to this shack. looks like it's falling in, grass about chest high. And finally, we see a sign, and I forget the other guy's name, but it was a, something dedicated to those two guys, and nobody was there, and we couldn't go in. But Jack London's stories deal with this reality of man against nature. And, and simply said, and, 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 and I saw it many times first, firsthand. We love nature, and, you know, hey, we love to go to the beach, and we love to watch the sunsets, and we love la-da-da-da-da. Nature will kill you. Let me tell you something. Just haul yourself down to Gulf Shores right now. Get your little lawn chair. Get out there about 6 o'clock one morning. And you stay out there at the sunsets. See how it works for you. Okay? Just see how it works for you. Or, or, hey, just say, you know what? I think I'm going to walk to Atlanta. See how, see how it goes for you. Nature will kill you. And so we see this hostility and the, the reality of uh, the fallenness of the natural order. And it afflicts Paul. And so many times when we think of difficult providences, where do we go? We do just like the the people on the uh, the island of Malta did. What did they do wrong? The doctor told them they've got this. The doctor told them they've got that. They've lost their job. Oh, they they must have done something. Who could have been more in the center of God's will than the apostle Paul? And yet, this storm was exactly what God ordained for Paul's life to take, to take him through it to the place that he would do what? He would bear witness both to the goodness of the gospel and of the overarching and undergirding goodness of the wise and sovereign providence of Almighty God in every circumstance, in every incident of our life. And so they make the mistake, and, it, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm a little bit of a chicken sometimes. I, I really am. And, and, and one of the days it was very windy, and people were staying with them, Kodiak, do you want to go out and check the, the salmon nets with us? And there were about four-foot waves, and the wind was blowing about 40 miles an hour. And I said, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. 
I do good to stand up here at this pulpit and not fall off here, okay, on Sunday mornings. I do not need to be in a 20-foot open aluminum boat with a 70-horsepower outboard on it. Oh, going around. I, that No. I'll just stay here at the house, okay? And so, uh, but at any rate, they were deceived into making a, a foolhardy uh, decision. And what they encounter, and most of us have heard the term the nor'easter. And in the Greek, the phrase is the euroquillo. It's, a, it's two words, a compound word. Euro is uh, the uh, uh, Greek, uh, Greek word uh, for uh, uh, east. Uh, yes, the Greek word for east. And quillo is the Latin word for north. Two languages, two together. And it's the idea of a wind originating in the north and blowing toward uh, the, the west. And it's a very dangerous wind for them to uh, be in, and it begins to blow them across the open sea. They are out of control at this point. Well, from their perspective, who, who owns the nor'easter? Who, to whom does the nor'easter belong? Who sent it their way? And, and so... Uh, we're told they do this very interesting thing, verse 17. They take ropes and they lash them around the ship. It's called frapping, and that's to help hold the ship together so the violence of the wind and the waves don't tear this ship uh, apart. And so they begin to have a fear of running aground, uh, so assuming, assuming the lowering the gear, I, I'm assuming that's the sails to keep them uh, from moving so fast. And then they throw out the cargo, at least the first time, verse 18, to, I guess, make the ship ride a little higher so that the water doesn't come over the sides and sink the boat. And so they're, they're, they're taking desperate measures in the midst of the storm. In verse 19, they, they throw the tackle over, the things that are utilized uh, to keep the ship uh, sailing. And then in verse 20, total darkness and despair. Now, uh, even heavy cloud cover can affect your little old GPS. Uh, we were in North Carolina a few years ago, and we went around a mountain twice. Because my GPS wouldn't connect, okay? And so we got to see a little, little bitty towns twice. But if they can't see the stars, they cannot engage in navigation. And so uh, they're, they're helplessly and hopelessly being blown along uh, in uh, the dark. Now, in verse 22, we have this supernatural intervention. Paul tells us that an angel appears to him and says take heart. No loss of life. Now folks, wouldn't that be great? Is that every time, and I don't mean to be too metaphorical or illustrative, but every time the wind blows and every time the storm comes, and I've already said, life is indeed a series of storms. That's just the reality. But every time that we're in the midst of that storm and the night is dark, don't you long for the angel to come alongside and put his arm around and say, it's going to be fine. It's just going to be fine. And tell you the details, don't you? 
We now don't look at me spiritual like. No, I just read my Bible and I know I know it's all gonna be fine. I just know you know. Don't look at me spiritual because I know. Yeah, but yeah, we really do wish we did, but we don't. But we really do have that sure word from the Lord that He is our good shepherd, and He is in the midst of every storm uh, with us. And so while Paul got this direct revelation uh, from God, we have God's direct promise multiple times that everything that comes into our life is redeemed for the good of those who love him. Well, as they're drifting, they recognize, they take these soundings, and they realize they're getting closer, and they're getting closer uh, to see. And once again, the Apostle Paul uh, engages in a bit of sanctified uh, wisdom and tells them to eat. Now notice, just uh, there, there in verse 33, you begin kind of this uh, practical uh, admonition, take some food. You haven't eaten in two weeks, eat something. It's not necessarily biblical, it's just good wisdom, isn't it? Here's a challenge for us sometimes. Very often, in the midst of the difficulties, we want to very quickly pontificate about the implications of Genesis 3 and so forth and so on. Maybe sometimes the best thing we can say to people is, you know, you need to get some rest. You need to, you need to eat. You need to take care of yourself. You need to quit fretting. We just need to give good advice. And, and here, here's, the, here's the tragedy of life in the storm. And I've told you this for 20 years. You all know this. You all be able to tell it back to me. But every Sunday when I step in this pulpit, every time I step in that classroom or any other classroom, I'm doing pastoral care. And that I'm trying to tell you adversity's coming. I don't know how it's coming or when it's coming, what, the, what it's going to look like exactly, but I can tell you adversity is coming. And again, we can go around the room. I've told, I mean, hey, you've been there, and it's coming. And once, once the waves are coming over the side of the ship, it's really hard to pontificate, isn't it? It's really hard to help you catch up. Sometimes the best we can do is say, let me hold your hand a little bit. Let me hug, hug your neck. Let me bring you a meal. You probably haven't even had time to cook dinner this week. Let me bring you something. Let me do something. Let me see if I can encourage you until the time that you can begin to think biblically, spiritually, be informed and empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit, which I will assure you a good word is, he has not left you, nor has he forsaken you in whatever the adversity is. And so we find, beginning in verse 39, the shipwreck, they make a plan. We're going to run this thing uh, aground. That sounds really simple. If you've ever been uh, in the ocean, and particularly if you're a ways out, it is not easy to get to shore. There are a lot of things that are between the boat and the land, uh, uh, one of them being sharks, but there are other things as well. Uh, but that, that sounds easy peasy. We're just going to run aground. We're going to walk off, say, hey, y'all, we're home. And yet they run aground, and they have to swim ashore. 
And again, uh, I, I, I'm in, for a very, very old person, I'm in okay shape. I can, I can walk from here to the back door and only be moderately out of breath. <clears throat> but let me tell you something, if I had to swim from here to the sound booth, you'd have to give it oxygen to me when I got there. I mean, this was a serious issue having to swim uh, to shore. And, of course, uh, they, they, the ones that couldn't swim, they grabbed onto a piece of wood, and they were able to uh, float in and get to land where they are rescued on what we know as the island of Malta. Most of you know a little bit about Malta. It's the site where Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin met to kind of decide how to wrap up World War II. But a very small island uh, to the south of Italy, and they are treated well except for the snakes. And we find that Paul is bitten by a snake. I'm a prisoner. I'm going to Rome. I've been at sea for two weeks. And I get bitten by a snake. <laughs> well, they just call me lucky. Yeah. I mean, that just stinks. And... To be sure, I think Luke was a student. The one thing, there are, no, there are no poisonous snakes on Malta today, I'm told. It's kind of like we went to Bear, a place called Bear Island, and they said there were no bears on Bear Island. And we're stomping around in the bushes, and I'm like, you know what, if I was a bear, I'd be right there. I mean, there were berries everywhere and places to hide, and I was, I was kind of nervous. That's why I sent Ellen first. You go first. I don't have to outrun that bear. Only I've got to run, outrun you. So anyway, he's bitten by the viper. Some see this as the fulfillment of this long ending to the book of Mark. No deadly poison taking up serpents. I don't think that's the case really. But God providentially preserved Paul. Now, this was not most likely a garter snake. Now, how many of you remember uh, the Yarboroughs who did the snake shows at schools for 50 years? You're kidding me. Are you serious? Nobody? I think they were from Talladega. And, I mean, they came up to Somerville for years and years and years and years. And I've seen them. Uh, I think it was Zach when he did a little junior high school thing or middle school thing. The, the, the husband had died and the wife came and did the snake show down at Cosby Campground down on Lake, whatever that is. And he told us that a poisonous snake, being bitten by a poisonous snake, was like having a car door slammed on your hand. So it's exceptionally painful just in that immediate thing. And so Paul has this and he shakes it off. It doesn't hurt him. Again, they think he's a, a god. And so uh, Paul survives this, and he's able to uh, continue uh, to minister. Uh, we don't hear anything about the preaching of the gospel on Malta, but I think probably quite obviously he did, and God used him uh, to bring healing, and ultimately they get to continue their journey uh, to Rome, all under the watch care of an almighty God who saw to it that he would take them to Rome to accomplish God's purpose. Let me say just a few things, kind of conclusion. This kind of is a, while we've got one more sermon, this, this is kind of a wrap for Acts. And I've 
told you before, my application's not my strong suit in preaching. Here are the 17 ways you're going to be better husband, father, electrician, carpenter, or whatever it is tomorrow, okay? Uh, I'm not the best. You know, my best is, you know, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's, that's my application, I guess. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. This actually worked out. I don't alliterate and I don't do cutesy very much. But, but just in thinking through how the Holy Spirit worked in Peter, Paul, the other disciples in the church, maybe these are some things that we could look at. Maybe there's just some words to contemplate, uh, to, uh, to, to have the character of Christ formed in us. As, as the late Harry Reader used to say, here's some takeaways. What could we learn from the book of Acts? The first thing is the truth and the necessity of conviction. These people, the church, was convinced of the truth and the uniqueness and the necessity of the gospel and that they must go and that they must be faithful and they were confident that the Word of God was sufficient. Okay? And I pray that in 20 years, that if I've convinced you of anything, that the Word of God is sufficient. It is sufficient in our salvation. It is sufficient in our sanctification. It is sufficient for, to be our guide from this day to the day that we stand before him. And so how we could, again, look and say, Lord, strengthen my conviction of commitment to the Word of God. Second, see, that of calling. Calling, first of all, to salvation, but calling to particular service. Now hear me. Please hear me. We say a lot about the Reformation here. One of the, the key distinctives of Reformation theology is the recovery of the doctrine of what they call the doctrine of calling. You say, yeah, Tim, you're a preacher. You called to that. You know, God appeared to you like Paul on Damascus Road and gave you all these gifts. And, you know, I'll, no, that's not what I'm talking about. There is a uniqueness to the call to eldership, and it's important, and I believe in it. But no matter what you're doing, God has called you to that vocation. He has called you to excellence, and he has called you to minister in that place at that time for his glory, for the sake of his gospel, for the sake of the good, to demonstrate your love for your neighbor through this business of calling. A good friend of mine in his prayer, one, kind of unusual, I don't, I, I, it, it always caught my ear, but he always prayed for courage how we need to pray for courage. Courage to live our lives in a fallen world. Courage to live out our convictions. Courage to stand in an ever-darkening world against a tide that is rising against us, that's pulling against us. How we need courage. And folks, I am not encouraged by what I've seen over the last three and a half years in regards to the courage of those that claim to be the people of God. And how we need to say that when we stand in that court before kings, that indeed Caesar is not my Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And so we need courage and we need commitment. Again, I was reminded of church, one of Churchill's famous speeches. He stood at the Harrow School and his words were what? Never give in. Never, never give in. Never, never give in. 
Never give in to the agenda of the world. Never give in to our own discouragement. Never give in to our own despondency. Never give in to all of the adversity that we face. Committed to finish the course. How about contentment? You are where you are by design. Paul can say, I've learned in whatever the circumstance to be content. And notice what he said, I've learned it. That means some of us have to teach it and some of us have to learn it. But we indeed have to. It's not natural. You you know what the first two words I learned were? And you know what the first two words you learned were? And the first two words your kids learned were? I won't. Now you can spell it either way because both are true. Okay, I-W-A-N-T, in other words, I don't have, so I won't, and I-W-O-N apostrophe T, I'm not going to, right? Parents, don't look at me spiritual. It's true. It was true of me. Learning contentment. God has you at a place for a particular purpose, particular time. Composure. Paul didn't fall to pieces. The world was falling to pieces all around him. And we can be composed because we know of God's good purpose for us. Clarity. Do we know what the message is? Do we know what our purpose is? Our purpose is to put the message on display. That, again, in my sorrow, in my difficulty, in my challenge, the gospel is still true. That is the ultimate purpose. That is why I'm here. Not for any other reason, but to make the gospel clear. And we need to be concise. That's the eighth C. Concise. Get to the point. Yeah, the the travel log was fun. And, you know, I think there's a lot more there that I could mine. But remember, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Compassion. I, I can't help but when I travel, and particularly to a place like Alaska, there is a lost and dying world. It seems to me like, very simply put, those that choose to stay in the most remote parts of Africa during the off-season, the non-tour season, their whole agenda is to gather at the local saloon and drink all day. They're sheep without a shepherd. How we need to have compassion. Compassion within this room, within the community. Confidence. that the gospel will succeed. Yeah, we're in a tough time. Culturally, it's a tough place. But would you look at the book of Acts, and, and, and did God accomplish his purpose as defined and determined for the people of the book of Acts? God will always accomplish his purpose. The gospel will survive. The church will endure. And we need to believe that. We also need to be a combatant people. This is not, we're not living on a cruise ship, folks. This is not, hey, you need to serve me. Bring bring me this, bring me that. It's not a cruise ship. It's a combat ship. We're combatants in an evil world. And then finally, we need to be concerned about our comportment. How do we act? How do we act when we're out? 
Do we act like those who live with hope? Is everything the opportunity for us to have a major fall apart, come apart? I'll give you my little silly example. You know one of the great, I guess it really falls in the category of unpardonable sin. If you bring me my hamburger, seems appropriate since Jimmy Buffett just died, my cheeseburger in paradise. If you bring it to me with mayonnaise, you absolutely deserve a tongue lashing. You absolutely deserve to be rebuked. I need to stomp and I need to snort and I need to throw my silverware on the floor and have a fit, right? Comportment. Comportment. How does the watching world see my behavior? What I say, what I do. Everybody's had a problem with the teller at the bank. Everybody's had problems with the check checkout people at Walmart and Publix. Everybody, you name it. Spirit-filled comportment. I think those are some things to, worthy of takeaways. Things to think about for the days ahead. It's a fallen world. It'll take those 12 things and more to live to the glory of God in the world that God has challenged and called us to live in. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, your truth. God, the testimony to your enduring, to your overcoming, to your empowering faithfulness. God, it is true. While it is unlikely that an angel will appear to us today or tonight or in this coming week and tell us, hey, it's really all going to be okay. We have a more certain word. We have a sure word from a sovereign heavenly father that says, my son is your good shepherd. My spirit is the one that lives to intercede for you and indwell you and empower you forever. And I am your heavenly Father that has ordained every step of your life for your good, for my purpose, and for my glory. May we live contented with that great truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.